And you know, I'm never harassed. I've gotten one anti-Semitic tweet ever. They don't give me any 30, love. 30% 30, 30 of that harassment comes from me. But yeah. that's, <laughs> that's totally We prefer stuff. it in person for you. Yeah. Hello, Jews and others who dwell with us in the grand sukkah of life. This is Unorthodox, a weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Hello. And by Senior Writer Liel Leibowitz. Mark, you're a bad hombre. Stephanie, you're a nasty woman. This podcast is rigged. <laughs> it's just like in 2000 when Al Gore's podcast was rigged. It's exactly the same thing. <laughs> so normally- Al Gore probably has a podcast. It's, called, it's called Hanging Chad. Is it really? No. That was good, that though. Up. That, was, that was totally what it would Thank be you. called. I was in middle school for that. I'm about to make a man-bear-pig joke, but like <laughs> probably 40% of our audience would get it. So, And the other 45% wouldn't, and the rest would vote for Gary Johnson. That's true. Mic drop. Um, I actually am going to let you guys guess what the two most important things that happened to me were in the past week. Okay, uh, well, Sukkus and... Sukkus ain't even close. Sukkus ain't that. top 10. You're wearing your black t-shirt to show us your David Duchovny. And also in an early Halloween, you know, surprise. Also, you have a cast on your hand. I have a cast on my hand. So the cast is number two. And and number one, I'll just be I finally went to Kanuka. Kanuka. Oh, so let's just, let's just get let's that just out there. Let's just say it for the last time. Kanuka. Kanuka. How was it? Was it everything you ever Kanuga hoped for? Kanuka is this beautiful 1,400-acre Episcopal Church Conference Center in Hendersonville, North Carolina. And as soon as he landed, by the way, life went from black and white to color. <laughs> <laughs> it's basically the Wizard of Oz. He, yeah. he made a career. Regis Lion and uh, Little Birds tweeted by man. Little Birds tweeted by and no to our producer uh, play somewhere over the rainbow as Mark stuff. <laughs> Um, it must have been really pretty this time of there year. Were, it was beautiful. Asheville. It looks like New England. I mean, it's it's in the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's about 20 minutes from Asheville. And it was gorgeous. And I spent three days um, talking and, and lecturing, uh, I shouldn't say at, but with 80 exceedingly bright, curious uh, Episcopal bright, pa bright pastors. Curious. What? Bright curious. Bright curious. Uh, Episcopal pastors and lay people and some Presbyterians and just asking questions about the golden rule in politics. It was really quite lovely. Uh, you know what it was? It was like communion for the soul in which there's actually literal communion. I actually had to stay seated when they all, they're all going up for- Did you go like this with your I, arms? I, are you supposed to do that? Well, I accidentally, one time I went to mass in college and they I couldn't avoid going up. I, you can go up for the prayer, but you can't take communion. So you put your arms- I'm trying to do it right now. You cross your arms. Yeah, that's on your what shoulders. you do if you're in sin. Like, if you're like not a, like well, a no, mighty morphin power you ranger. If you're Catholic, yeah. you don't. You do that if you're if you've sinned lately and you're not confessed. You're not supposed to take communion. That's oh, what you well, did. They told me, no, they told me to do that. They're <laughs> like, if you're if you can get the blessing, but you can't take communion. And you took their Catholic blessing. I took any blessing I could get. What do you mean? You sort of happened to walk into a she Catholic experimented mass? I wrote in a column for the newspaper blessings. about the different uh, religious services on campus. Stephanie's <laughs> idea of like wilding out in college. And one time I was I like, I was, this is my rebelling. <laughs> so number one was I went to Canuga. What's number two? You have I a broke, big cast on your arm. big cast on my arm. And you'll, we're going to send a photo of this out in the newsletter. Of course. The dying dog storyline played out its usefulness. JJ. Wise, and now we have physical injury. JJ is still dying at home, <laughs> alas. But uh, so is my little pinky on my left hand. Do you... It's your pinky. How? And they have to do two fingers. How squeamish are you about hearing? Do you want to hear what happened? No. Y you are now digitally enhanced. I, I, I am. I want to hear what happened. I really want to hear what happened. Okay. So, Stephanie, you can plug your ears. I'm going to tell you what happened. 
So I'm running up the stairs like the sprightly 42-year-old I am, literally with my hands out in front of me on the stairs in front of me to get up there to get sheets, to put them on the guest bed because the in-laws are coming. Oh, my God. And I get to the top of the stairs. I trip, fly forward, and there's a a corner of a wall. So picture, you know, a right angle. And four of my fingers go to one side of the corner and my pinky splays onto the other. And I keep going forward, throwing my pinky back at an angle. So – I run, I look at it. I'm in shock. It's numb for a moment before the wave of pain crashes oh, over me. Moment. And I think I've broke, this is, this has to be a broken finger. Like I, so I walk downstairs very calmly calling in front of me, Sid, Sid, I broke my finger. I'm going to need to go to the hospital. I'm going to need to go to the hospital. Now, Sid happens to think that I am, have no threshold for pain and that I'm a hypochondriac, both wonder, of which are true. Wonder, yeah. So <laughs> she's ideas. used, she's, she's been through my fears of testicular cancer, pneumonia, bronchitis, all, of, none of which. You have to look at that. <laughs> none of <laughs> which. you to look at a finger. Yeah, that one was looked at too. None of which ever pans out. So I'm walking downstairs and I know she's thinking, you didn't break your finger. And I walk in and she turns to face me, her eyes literally rolling back in her head, ready to say, you did not break your finger. And then she looks at it and turns green and like says. It's going a different direction. It's literally going a different direction and says, Oh, oh. And then she says, let's call Liam to take you to the hospital. Liam's our friend. And she goes into like, you know, because we have four kids sleeping upstairs. So Liam takes me to the hospital. I go three hours later. I have the splint. I'm sorry, you couldn't drive yourself? (laughs) I wasn't thinking I was going to drive myself. Uh, Uber was involved for the trip back. Anyway, God bless Uber. God bless Liam. I'm all right. But my, my, um, you know, there may be surgery required. So it, how long after that did you get on a train to come down here? About six hours. Wow. About so, th- so the point being... That's how much he loves you. My listeners. commitment to this podcast is six hours later, I'm on a train to Mark come Mark Oppenheimer died for your sins. <laughs> That's right. And of course, the third most important thing is Shmini Atzeret is upon us. So could somebody at last tell me what Shmini Atzeret is as a holiday? I mean, it's the day, it's the last day of Sukkot, right? But That's what right. is it? Does it mean anything in Hebrew? The first rule of Shemini Yetzirah is we don't talk we don't about, talk about it. <laughs> we, The three of us work at a Jewish magazine. None of us knows what it means or what it is. Well, it's just so boring to explain. Okay. Explain it's it. It's so like... You can't give us the 20-second process? Well, my understanding is I, I remember I wrote the kind of explainer holiday <laughs> for tablet. It's sort of like, you know, it's the eighth day of the holiday. It's kind of the thing that you do when like all the holiday like ends and you're about to like shift into Simchas Torah. There's like one catch-all Sort of like just to make sure you got all the mitzvahs right. It's you know supremely well technical. Happy Shmini Yatzer to all. <laughs> happy Shmini Yatzer. All right, so that's well, nothing on Hoshana Rabba. Oh, seriously, yeah, oh, Hoshana Rabba. All right, um, friends. A little news of the Jews. Two hundred fifty woman rabbis. That's one word. Woman rabbis signed a letter opposing Donald J. Trump the first for president. It was. They're all fives. <laughs> He's like, they let women be rabbis? Who would ever want to ordain them? (laughs) According to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, about 20 protesters demonstrated last week outside the Inquiring Minds Bookstore Cafe in Saugerties in upstate New York because the owner hung a banner that superimposed the word Trump over a Nazi flag. Uh, He's against Trump, which is why he was calling him a Nazi. Some demonstrators held Trump signs. Others were counter demonstrators who supported Hillary Clinton. And weirdly, the Anti-Defamation League's regional director, Evan Bernstein, attacked the banner as well, saying that using the symbol of Nazism to make a political point is highly inappropriate and repugnant. And the Nazis demonstrating were like, please, we had ideals. We believed in something. But isn't it weird that the Anti-Defamation League is like, no, 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 don't don't call Trump a Nazi. We're going to I mean, I guess he wants to save that word for like people who actually want to throw us in the gas chambers. I think the problem is we throw around like Nazi 
like think about it like we call everyone a Nazi who just like disagrees with us at this point and obviously Trump there's like some real legit comparisons but this idea that like you can just like put a swastika over the media sign at a press like at a Trump right, rally it's right. like these symbols almost are losing their meaning because we're just projecting them everywhere and I think that's the ADL stance. At the Desert Trip Music Festival in Palm Springs, California, jokingly called Old Achella because it's where people like Roger Waters so go to. Old Chella. Old Chella. Old Chella. Old Chella. Not Coachella, but Old Chella. Former Pink Floyd dude Roger Waters got all Speaking political. Of, uh, he urged the audience. So the ADL is going to come after you, Liel, because you Stop called Roger Waters. Stop calling people Nazis. Okay. Okay. He got all political. He urged the audience to vote Hillary, and he urged Israel to end the occupation. The person who couldn't even get along with the three other members of Pink Floyd is like telling the Israel people to ever. get along with the Palestinians who are blowing them up. It's like, you know what? Call Gilmore. Be like, first we make peace, right? Break down this wall. <laughs> then worry about our wall. When Pink Floyd can get a reunion Bunker. show together. Yeah, that's that's right. when I listen to you. Uh, and by the way, the, the Jew on stage that really likes Israel and wrote a great song about it. Yeah, that Jew just won the Nobel Prize, bitch. But speaking of which, in News of the Jews, it's unclear if he knows that he won the Nobel Prize because oh, they does. can't find care. him anywhere. They can't, they can't reach him. They can't reach him. He's, He's in lockdown. Literally DGAF. He's actually at the Tablet Studios like, right now. He's actually Bob upstairs. on the pavement <laughs> mixing up the medicine. <laughs> He's upstairs copy editing the next print issue, which you can get by texting tablet to 66866. It's going to be a good one. All right. Uh, an ultra-Orthodox website wrote about Israeli Ubermodel. She's more than a supermodel. She's an Ubermodel. Bar Raffaelli visiting B'nai Barak, but they ethnically cleansed her line of work in their article. Presumably out of opposition to the modeling profession, the site Shabbat Square wrote that, quote, Businesswoman Bar Raffaelli visited B'nai Brock. I like the euphemism businesswoman well, I mean, for, the, 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 for everything. You're missing the bigger story, which is they pixelated her image. Her. You at literally all? couldn't see her at all. At she, all? she was she was Blur Raffaelli. <laughs> Look, I love the idea that they're finally like she is a businesswoman. She's you know hugely successful and has transcended past modeling and, and so really? I like what's her business she's not a businesswoman she's a business, she's a business woman. woman so look so I love the idea <laughs> that they're calling like that they're not being like model or like to, like swimsuit model Bar Raffaelli mother like of one Bar Raffaelli they're doing it for like literally all the wrong reasons and if there was a Haredi <laughs> Donald Trump he would grab her by the pixel <laughs> That's pretty We're good. We're like on fire today. Thank I'm really you. proud of you. All right. The two most important stories of the week. Uh, should I do the not safe for work one first or the safe for work one? Safe for work. Safe for work. The University of Maryland, which has boatloads of Jews, they want to make it easier for their ortho Jews to attend home football games. So the university is going uh, to allow the students, instead of bringing those scannable tickets that force an electronic scanner to violate the Sabbath, they're going to give them wristbands that they can put around their wrists and wear because that makes it Shomer Shabbos. They don't have to carry them. They can wear them and that will get them into the game. Now, of course, the solution is still not perfect because if they have to look up at replays at the Jumbotron, for some Jewish students, that will looking at the screen alone will violate oh, no, the that Sabbath. That has been solved, too. There will be a stage built at eye level <laughs> on which there will be people actually acting out, reenacting. <laughs> I just love these workarounds, you know, yeah. these halachic workarounds. It's like, you know what the problem is with going to a football game on Shabbat? It's that scannable ticket. <laughs> it's the turnstile. Get, get over the turnstile and literally you're totally with both the spirit and the letter of the law. <laughs> I have an idea. There's actually an easier solution for this, which is just make it free for orthodox just no ticket needed and then then everyone would be putting on yarmulkes and tzitzis and they just all walk in and you have way, a super 
the games should just be free because these are student because athletes uh, playing uh, and we're profiting on that. Look, as a former, uh, look, I'm gonna, is that I'm how they say, do it at Duke? As a former Division One athlete, the only one in this room, I think it's just you know like we're profiting off the backs of these kids who are not. I don't know. I agree with you. Look, what the, it, the Duke fencing team brought in so much money, like so much <laughs> revenue that I can really, really speak confidently these, on this. All these endorsements. The, at the school, it was like the, pretty much the biggest sport that yeah. anyone cared about. What did they charge to get in to watch you fence? Oh, we had the Duke meet. It was free. Now now we have the not safe for work best story of the week, which is Jewish only in that it involves... A Jew. Oh, she's Jewish. Well, that's right. Ivanka's a, Jewish. A Jewess, <laughs> if you will. All right. If you have little children, if you are... If you'd not look at the Jumbotron, maybe you should also not listen to this story. Let's put it that way. Um, Ivanka Trump, of course, reacted to the lewd comments from the Access Hollywood tape by saying that um, she was shocked. She said uh, that's not language consistent with any conversation I've ever had with my father or any conversation I've overheard. This led Jonah Peretti, who's the CEO and founder of BuzzFeed, uh, the website, to just kind of tell his website for a news story that he begs to differ. So he wrote out, surprised Ivanka would be shocked by lewd language. I met her once and she casually said, I've never seen a mulatto cock, but I'd like to. <laughs> this election cycle is amazing. It's like a gift that keeps on giving. Here's this the is thing. now a news story. Like, yeah, like serious BuzzFeed had to do a blog post right. like based on their found like on their CEO's tweet. News outlets <laughs> are writing the phrase mulatto cock. Right. In their reporting, and there is nothing I mean, anyone could do about it. Here's Wolf the thing. Blitzer will say mulatto cock <laughs> on air. Well, in, in, in his, whatever the opposite of defense is, Wolf Blitzer played that tape so many times on CNN that day. My mom texted me and was like, Wolf Blitzer is, obs- is obsessed. <laughs> is having like the best day of his life. I just want to say, what's especially great about this is actually... Joda Peretti has just been waiting for years to tell this story about right. the time Ivanka Trump talked about Mulatto Cox because it's actually not really related to Donald Trump at all. Like the connection in his mind, the news peg is she pretended to be shocked, but she couldn't be shocked because 12 years ago she said Mulatto Cox. And, and all I asked her was, how's your dinner? <laughs> Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Our Gentile of the Week this week is Saurabh Amari. He's an editorial writer for The Wall Street Journal. He lives in London, and he is the author of The New Philistines, How Identity Politics Disfigure the Arts, which has just been published. He's been with The Wall Street Journal since 2012, and we are happy to have him on the line. Hi, Saurabh. Hey, guys. So the new book, The New Philistines, How Identity Politics Disfigure the Arts. How how do identity politics disfigure the arts, Saurabh? Yeah, well, you know, I've been an art enthusiast 
for for years, and especially since I've been in London, I, you know, it's a great city for the arts. So I've just been immersing myself in this world, and I've just been going to too many, from dance performances to performance art to uh, installations to video to theater to film, you name it, where I can't find really any t- trace of beauty or truth, <laughs> which are sort of the eternal aspirations of art to my mind and historically in any of it and so the only justification for for the uh, all this inept art is that it reaffirms certain identitarian categories or grievances you know right, so, so here's a bunch us, of what do you find when you go out to these galleries give us some of the titles of the of some of the talks and the exhibitions and some of the concepts that you've encountered and what do they mean for us i promise i didn't try to find this kind of art. I just said, okay, what are the premier galleries and institutes? I'm just going to go and see what I find. And every single one was about identity politics. So there was one piece of art called Ava 3.0, uh, a stock 3D model used by companies that produce adult inter- like 3D adult entertainment and video games. And the artist had this model, you know, spraying female ejaculate at the viewer. Ooh. And that's it. And this know? comes so with I, a text that says, you know, this work examines the commensurate intricacies of intersectionality and sexual agenda. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, exactly. A lot of our listeners aren't necessarily bathed in the identity politics world. So, I mean, just let's back up a second here and say, when, when you say identity politics, what do you, how do you define that? Yeah, that's a good question. I would say it's politics that denies the possibility of of the universal, right? Of some truths that can be held in common by all people by virtue of the fact that, that we're people. Although it will so never politics, admit that, right? I mean, that's that's the major insight that you have in the book is, is that it denies the possibility of the universal while at the same time claiming that it, meaning just the art of those who feel themselves to be marginalized for one reason or another, is the only constant. Yes. Okay, have you seen any like art you liked recently? Or has it just all been things you, you didn't find um, artistic? I'm going to sound relevant? really curmudgeonly, but yeah, I mean, I, I went to a performance of Rachmaninoff's uh, All Night Vigil uh, in London, and that was great, but that's, you know, about a century old. So you're a real classicist, um, is what you're saying. No, you know where I find real beauty? I find a, in a lot of Hollywood movies, uh, weirdly enough. So, so, so I, th- I think Christopher Nolan is a visual master. And there's more worthwhile imagery and real beauty in his movies than in any of the sort of serious, you know, this is a video installation at the Institute of Contemporary Arts London or, or at the MoMA or whatever. And because Hollywood is in some ways liberated from some of these kind of demands of the high art world. Well, because it actually has to make and, money and is not supported by grants. And there grants. is an aspect of making money. And you do have to, you still have to appeal to some part of people that, that, that where they enjoy beauty. And so I think, I think Christopher Nolan's uh, Interstellar is very beautiful. Let me, let me ask you a question that you yourself answer in the book, uh, which I think is a really important one. What does any of this matter? I mean, you write about all these like art installations and exhibitions and some theater and, you know, probably what a mm-hmm. couple thousand people see them. They're sponsored mm-hmm. by grants and, you know, they exist within this very academic, tenured, radical community, right? What's the matter to the rest mm-hmm. of us? 
Well, I mean, at a, at a basic public policy level, which I don't mention in the book, is that a lot of this is actually funded to the tune of, I mean, the, yes, there are grants, but these enormous grants. Sure. I think, but that's a, that's a kind of a, a side point. I think the main point why this matters is that art historically, the very best art, to me, has helped people, as I said, to relate to each other and to resolve maybe differences that other kinds of societies resolve through through civil war, through dictatorship, through ethnic cleansing, whatever. And so if we have, if, if the highest kind of art, the art that is the serious art that defines a culture, and it's the ones that governments and academia sponsor uh, with, with our money, is all just constantly saying, division, division, you know, you, I can't relate to you because you, you, I'm, I have certain privileges, or you can't relate to me because you're privileged, and it just creates a, not only is the art ugly and inept, but it just, it creates a coarse culture. Um, so, and, and the, the, these ideas, by the way, never stay in this academic realm. I think they always filter down. So I think a lot of people now, I see it in Facebook, their idea of what, you know, was this movie good? Is, did it affirm certain kind of political claims that I hold or, uh, did it not? So in, a, in a weird way, correct. And, and you make this point in the book that this sounds, although you know, comes from two different uh, terminologies and, and 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 lexicons, but this sounds a lot like Donald Trump, right? It's the same kind of basic identity-driven competitive philistinism that that we're seeing, you know, in the debate. Yeah. So, I mean, in the book's conclusion, I, I do explicitly draw the connection, which is that if if culture only rewards the assertion of identity, I am black, therefore XYZ, I am trans, therefore XYZ, um, then other people, I would call them the kind of silent majority, for lack of a better term, they're going to start wanting their piece of the identity pie. Well, what about me? And so I think part of this backlash of what's called the alternative right, that's really, really nasty and genuinely anti-Semitic, genuinely racist and sexist and misogynistic, is partly a, it's a mirror image of this kind of politics on the left. I'm, I'm, I fully kind of put my cards on the table. I'm not the only one to have noticed this, that sort of the outright and the very sort of extreme left identity politics are, in the, they're caught up in this weird circuit where they feed into each other. Hey, so you recently decided that Twitter was the right place to announce to the world that you're becoming a Catholic. Um, I gather that you were raised Muslim or you're ancestrally Muslim. Yeah, Muslim-born, Shiite-born in Iran, because I was born and raised in Iran. Okay, so... But my family, I mean, yeah, wasn't super practicing. So, you know, you're, you're not a committed Muslim. You weren't, you're not super practicing. Uh, you have a, a spiritual urge inside you. You have a, a, a wealth of world religions to choose from. You could have become a Jew. We would have happily had you. Yeah, um, like a little offended you didn't. Yeah, and you, you choose... You choose <laughs> I feel like we were close. Maybe like maybe a close second. You know, you're at the Wall Street Journal. There's some Jews there. You, you knew what was up. You, you sampled us. Don't, don't, don't deny it. And you all end up yeah. choosing Catholicism. Like, what's going on there? Is it like you, you believe the whole... The resurrection thing? Do you believe it's true, or is this like those? Those, I are, do. those are your people culturally. How did tell us about your journey? Uh, yeah, to boil it down, um, I actually came to Catholicism from pretty much unbelief. It actually had been brewing for ten years. You know, so I was raised in a kind of secular middle class Iranian context, and for me, religion was just the Islamic Republic, which is this oppressive Islamist theocracy. So I tried Nietzsche thought, you know, God is dead, it's obvious, 
without having really thought it through, and then just went through and, and for a while, Marxism, psychoanalysis, uh, Foucault and postmodernism, da 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 but I was never fully satisfied, and the dirty secret was that when I still felt like I had a kind of human need or where I was in moments of crisis, I would pray to an almighty and then set that aside and go back to being uh, a, a staunch atheist and secularist. So um, the experience of brokenness, of uh, my own brokenness and other people's, uh, led me to think that, you know, the, the more ancient tradition, the Judeo-Christian tradition of seeing all of us as somehow that there's a brokenness written into us made much more sense, and that if, it, if, it, if the claims of, of the New Testament, which I found both aesthetically beautiful because of, of that mind, if they're true, and this is a vision of the world that makes sense to me that it takes the sacrifice of the Almighty Himself to redeem the world, then where do you find kind of the fullest expression of it all? And so I, I went to Catholicism because of its, of its authority, the beauty of the liturgy uh, in the Mass, the fact that there's this kind of unbroken, nearly unbroken chain of authority from Christ down to the, the Apostles and then the kind of apostolic succession to, down to Pope Francis. So although I flirted for a while with evangelical Christianity, ultimately I found the fullest expression of this truth in the Catholic Church, so I took this step. Hallelujah, I, brother. I've noticed that a lot of um, Catholics, or a lot of, a lot of converts, a lot of catechumens, uh, have a friend or a priest, a particular person who kind of guided them in. Have you had such a person? Yeah, I would say my, my catechist. Uh, uh, very old-fashioned English, uh, and he's a convert himself, although he converted when he was 12. Um, so he's been very influential. Uh, and the interesting thing was that, you know, he seemed like he was suited for me, like he was created for me. So I, I decided to sort of become a Catholic. So I knocked on this, you know, this house with these priests and I knocked on the door and he opened and he's like, well, what do you want? I said, I want to become a Roman Catholic. And he said, <laughs> you know, he said, okay, I shall teach you. You're and like the reverse Jehovah's said, Witness. You knock on the door to ask questions. <laughs> Wait, is this guy, yeah. this is a priest? He was. This was like a priory or a, a monastery or something? Or Yeah, yeah. I, I won't go into the details because I'm, I'm, because I'm Muslim-born. I don't want to specifically identify uh, where this, this church is. But, oh, okay. Uh, and why this, this setup exists. But, but basically, you know, he said, ah, okay, I shall teach you. And then he just... Without missing a beat, he said, "We begin with Aristotle." <laughs> and, <laughs> That's amazing. And <laughs> that's how it was intellectually, it was suited for my brains. So I wouldn't say it's providential, but it's very lucky that that was my first encounter. You know, I read I read of, this essay that you wrote about it, which is wonderful, by the way. And, and you know, everyone should you. should Google it and, and read it. And I got to tell you, from from the depth of my very, you know, hardcore Jewish soul, I agree with you. I think Christianity is arguably really the only civilizing force left in the world. And and you know, more power to you. I think what Thank Liel you. is I think what Liel is trying to say to our Gentile the week, Sorab Akhmari, author of the New Philistines, is Mazel Tov. That's exactly yeah. right. <laughs> Sorab, Thank thanks, you. Thanks for joining us as the Gentile of the week. I appreciate it. All right. Bye bye.
upcoming live shows. I'm just going to talk about one. Many of you are downloading this on Thursday, October 27th. If you're in the Boston area or have friends who are, then you would want to know about our show at Hebrew College in Boston. The bill just gets better and better. Jeremy Hobson of NPR's Here and Now, retired General Tom Hill, and Boston Globe columnist Jeff Jacoby will all be there with us. November 17th, we'll be in Toronto, February 10th in West Palm Beach, Florida. Drop us a line if you're interested in booking us for a live show. We're not super affordable, but some of you have a lot of money, so uh, you should drop us a line. If that interests you, email our Director of Audience Development and Podcast Producer, Alyssa Goldstein, at egoldstein at tabletmag.com. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Jew of the week is, he's really Jewy. Orthodox educated Noam Osband is a filmmaker and he's finishing a degree in anthropology at the University of Pennsylvania. Speaking of Jewy, uh, his first feature was the film, do you say Adelante? Adelante, yeah. Adelante, which profiled Mexican immigrants who were revitalizing an Irish Catholic church outside Philadelphia. His most recent film is a short called The Radical Jew, which is a profile of Baruch Marzal, who is a leader of the Israeli far right. Uh, it just won the best short documentary at the Tallgrass Film Fest and Charlotte Film Fest. Where's Tallgrass? Wichita, Kansas. You you won best short in Wichita? In Wichita, Kansas. You're and bit, he has the t-shirt to prove it. He's was, wearing it right now. I was there. <laughs> yeah. Only so, the winner gets a shirt. <laughs> right. There's one shirt. So this guy, he's he's a Jew who's big in Wichita. So uh, he Noam, thank you for being our Jew of the week. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, you wanted to start in, Leo, with, with the short on Baruch Marzal, right? I mean, me and the people of Wichita, okay. we both have respect for that kind of thing. <laughs> I thought it was amazing. Tell us first of all about about the uh, the movie. Who's this guy? How did you become interested in him? And what what did you find out when you talked to him? Sure. So Baruch Marzel, everybody knows who he is in Israel, and almost nobody knows who he is in America. Um, he is one of the leaders of the far right in Israel. He's run for parliament a few times and has narrowly missed. He's, his work could best be described, although this term is now so loaded, he's a community organizer. So he organizes lots of rallies and politics. He helps run the guest house. He lives in, in Hebron, which is the largest city in the West Bank. 
And it's also the only place where there's Jews living inside a Palestinian city. Um, and what he's best known for is he's probably the foremost Kahanist in Israel. So he was Rabbi Meir Kahana's right-hand man. Meir Kahana was a, a far-right Jewish leader. He forms the Jewish Defense League in the na- late 1960s. Assassinated this week. No, next week. At the, the downtown Hilton, years ago, right? Downtown Marriott. Marriott, believe, sorry. In the first ever Al-Qaeda attack on U.S. soil. So Baruch Marzel was Kahana's right-hand man, and Kahana was in the parliament for a term until his party, Kach, was banned. To date, the only party in modern Israel whose ban has been upheld by the Supreme Court, accused of opposing democracy and inciting racism, and Marzel was his right-hand man. How did you get him? Why choose him? So Marzel is a distant relative, hmm. um, and Marzel— we, I, Baruch we all, Hashem. <laughs> So growing up, we knew we had it was like crazy cousin Baruch because he was his firebrand. I-, I met him twice. That makes I- the Seder so yeah. much funnier. We yeah. all have a crazy cousin Baruch, but uh, you actually have a crazy. Few cousin. of them were head of a group though that was declared was- a terrorist group by Israel and the United States. Um, unlike this cousin, um, and so I met him once when we were thirteen. My family went to Hebron, Hebron in Hebrew, and uh, he gave us a tour. He gives lots of tours of Hebron. Um, and I once stayed, he like put me up in the caravan next to him when I was in yeshiva for a year after high school, but I didn't really know him. And then I had this idea of, I was always interested in him. I mean, to me, Jewish, um, I hate the word terrorism, um, but the group has been yeah, declared has a, a, a terrorist. A really bad ring to it. Terrorism. Well, I think terrorism is not, a, it's not a, a, a good term because it, it, it's, it can be used for sort of anything that we don't like. Um, but the group that he was the it's head like of... It's like the way the other guy's religion is a cult. 100%. Uh, but, but the group he was in charge of, Kach, um, was banned um, not long after the Baruch Goldstein massacre in Hebron. So I'm interested in the idea of sort of like Jewish extremism because, you know, for the better part of two millennia, Jews were not generally violent extremists because we couldn't be. Um, and now sort of like in the last 140 years, right, you sort of have these strains of real muscular Zionism um, which which sort of do see sort of force as a Jewish ideal, which undoubtedly Marzel and Kahana do. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting. And I wanted to make a movie, and the movie is done completely in the style of Errol Morris. Specifically, he has this TV program that he did on Showtime called First Person. You can find it on YouTube. It's amazing. And it's all these profiles of a single individual um, done in sort of Errol Morris has this distinct style called an interatron, where he puts a teleprompter in front of the camera. So you're looking directly into the interviewer's face. The interviewer is not looking at you. Um, and what also what Errol Morris does, which I like, is he doesn't pass judgment in his films. And while I have strong views about Marzell, um, the best compliment I ever get, which I got in Wichita, was from people who are like, I saw the film and I, you know, I, I, it seemed to me very ob- objective. And he was terrified by it. Marzell was. I mean, there's a point in the film in which he says, this is a great scene. He's standing there in the kitchen <laughs> cooking this cholent or something in this <laughs> immense pot and saying, you're going to make me look like a pussycat. Like he's, he's so, afraid so, right. of so what's you amazing humanizing is, him. Yeah, exactly. Marzell's scared. I'm going to make him look like you're gonna, weak. Like, you're you're gonna gonna a normal defang him. Like a little kitty. Amazing, right? Yeah. I I love that moment. The Arabs are going to be like, that guy's not so harsh. Hey, look, he's um, cooking cholent. And <laughs> be afraid of a guy like cooking cholent. <laughs> so I built my own Interatron. I built, I bought like one small teleprompter, found a guy in New Jersey uh, who makes these teleprompters. He custom built me one, the nicest guy ever, the Tompter. Um, and I brought it to Israel. I got Baruch's phone number. I met up with him in a hotel lobby in Jerusalem, told him what I wanted to do. 
to a degree that is like rare in my experience with film subjects, he really didn't care. Like he was not really for it or against it. The really only thing he cared about is that like he didn't want me to interfere with his schedule. And as long as I wasn't getting in the way, that was cool. He had people to rouse. He had, he had racial anger to incite. I mean, <laughs> he, he's busy. He, he is a super busy guy. He uh, is. And, and in, in the film, he shares with you his ideology in a way that that comes off as, as very earnest. I've spent a lot of time with these guys. So, uh, you know, I've, I've heard this before, but I think you captured it very nicely. He says, look, I don't know why you're calling me a racist. I'm not a racist. I will be very happy. If an Arab wanted to convert to Judaism, he could marry my daughter. Like, right. did, did you did you buy that? Um, I think he believes it. I think he thinks he isn't racist. Where I guess I dis- strongly disagree with him is he thinks we we don't hate them because they're Arabs. We hate them because they're the enemy. Right. And I think in his mind, they're an implacable foe who there's sort of no possibility for coexistence. You see, you're, you're getting it wrong. This is not a race war. It's a religious war. Right. <laughs> Whatever scares you more. Sure. I mean, he thinks that ideologically there is no way in which these people will ever come to live in peace with him. Um, and I, you know, like, respectfully disagree. I just think that ultimately that ideology is always malleable and that eventually there does the possibility of, of coexistence exist. But the thing that the movie captures, I think, so neatly is... Unlike Kahana, who is this very charismatic firebrand rabbi, there is something and, – and, and now that I know that you've used this Arab Morris technique, it makes a lot more sense to me. But there is something almost uh, naive and childlike in his eyes. I mean you see a kind of, of, a kind of almost innocence there in Marzel. So yeah, he's not as charismatic or as well-spoken or as well-written as Kahana, who like Kahana – there's a reason he managed to be like the leader of groups in, in two different countries. He was an amazing speaker and writer. Um, in some sense, part of me thought of Marzell. I mean, he was a troublemaker as a kid. And there's a part of me that thinks that like one aspect of what he's doing is just like it's, it's mischievous. Um, and he sort of enjoys being mischievous. But his mischievousness is done on a much deeper sort of scale There's some pretty high stakes <laughs> yes. to, his mis- so, to his mischief making yeah. what was his response to the film has he seen it he has not seen the film he does not use email um, old school so old school so you know what I wanted to make in a film was a film that he would not be unhappy with I think he would be happy with all the movie except for the last couple minutes where I sort of think he's directly connected well, I think he's connected. Now, I don't think he's ordering any of the things that the acts of Jewish violence that have happened now. And there has been an increase in the last couple of years of Jewish violence against Palestinian civilians and property in Israel. But I think he's undoubtedly like uh, an inspirational leader and he, he helps play a role. He's a member of Lahava, which is a far right group that foments violence. Um, and I bring that up at the end. I think except for the end of that film, I'd like to think he would be okay with it. And I mean, the funny thing about extremism, right, is like, so a big inspiration for the film was the documentary Jesus Camp. I don't know if any of you saw yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Jesus Camp is a great documentary about this like Christian fundamentalist camp. I saw it and I was like, holy, holy cow. Like this is really crazy. The Village Voice reviewed holy it. Holy red heifer. Yeah, The Village Voice reviewed it and said like, this is a scary view of American fundamentalism. The people in Jesus Camp loved on the it. whole loved, loved it. it. Yeah. They said, yeah. this is who we this are. This is like the time, I just yeah. have to tell the story. This is like the time when I wrote about a Mormon temple, which I was allowed to see as a journalist before they seal it and never again let in non-Mormons. I took a tour and I wrote that it had the aesthetic of a first-class businessman's hotel, which I thought was a bit of a put down. They loved it. They were like, exactly. We yeah. always want to look like a Marriott. They just love, they thought, what a compliment. Yeah. So, so Marzell is, 
is pretty much the only voice. There's a lot of archival footage of Kahana, but pretty much the only voice is Marzal, and he gets to say his piece. So I think most people hearing this person talk about, you know, uh, sort of we want them out and it's, you know, how we don't hate them because they're Arabs, we hate them because they're the enemy, would would probably come away not thinking great of him. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's funny because I, but I had people tell me they were worried that either the film is going to make people think uh, that a lot more Jews are like this in yeah. Israel than there are. But the, the, I also had people say, and what in my mind the greatest worry is, is that there's going to be like some kid in Brooklyn who sees this and thinks that sort of Kahana is is the right way forward, which, which I don't think is the case. Um, to answer your question, what was the most surprising thing? Easily, the mo- thing that was most surprising to me, and I bring this up in the film, he's an adorable grandfather. Like he is – I had very loving grandparents – uh, my grandparents were like not nearly as affectionate with me as like he is with them. He's like really cute and laughing and cuddly. Can I just say they always are like really scary fundamentalist people. Part of it is because they're building a movement and he looks at his grand, I'm just guessing. He looks at his grandchildren and thinks these guys are the future. Like the investment in, when you're an ideologue, the investment in the right. next generation is super Tremendous. strong. Like you want to love, you don't want those kids right. to rebel. I mean, I don't even think it's necessarily ideology as much as like Peru or Avu, you know, be fruitful and multiply. And it's like the most important thing a, a, a Jew can do is have a large Jewish family. And he has had, he says at one point, unfortunately, I've only had nine kids, but that's what God gave us. <laughs> that's, that's a great detail. Seven of them were arrested by the police. <laughs> Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem. Seven out of the nine have been arrested, he says. Um, and he, he's a very nice person on the whole. If, if, if you're a Palestinian living in there, you, you you wouldn't think that. But if you're if you're Jewish, and especially if you're not a hardcore leftist, he's actually a very sweet Person, I don't want to make him sound like a. No, that's true. Like a I monster. Met him. You, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, now you f- you wrapped up shooting on Wednesday. On Thursday, you were somewhere completely different. Yeah. So I have had a very lucky film experience in life because um, I have had my film career intrinsically connected to American game shows. So uh, I started making films my first year of my PhD program. That summer, I said to myself, like, I, I want to buy my own gear. How am I going to do this? Da, 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 da. I was a Jeopardy contestant and a one-time Jeopardy champion. God I, bless I America. I bought my film gear. Mazel tov. I feel like truly lucky that this has happened to me. And then a few years later, I was in Israel uh, working on this film, and I had tried out for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And they told me, like, my date. I had to cut my trip short, and then I had to, like, rush the interview. I almost actually didn't get the interview. And then... I shot the interview, like went straight from there to the airport, landed, had like a few hours of sleep, and then taped an episode of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and and did well for yourself. I did well for myself. I'm embarrassed. Like I, you know, I I rarely talk. You're gonna make us go to Google. Dude, we will I, find the clip. You'll find it. You we, I, I did not post it online, but other people have. Uh, After I wanna, taxes, what is it? I won a quarter of a million dollars. Nice. Was your I phone a friend, Baruch Marzo? They don't do phone a friend anymore because <laughs> oh, of Google. Phone friend with the Google. Right. That would have been amazing. I, mean, I should amazing. say, like, I am so self-conscious of talking about this with people. Honestly, I'm the, as the father of four, that doesn't even sound like a lot of money. That's like summer camp for two kids yeah, for one for summer. Like, <laughs> honestly, if you told me a quarter minute, I was like, great, one of my four children can go to college. Yeah. Nine years from now, for like a little bit. Hey, listen, you brought your ukulele with us. I did. Will, you, will you do a song? I will. All right, awesome. Well, multi-talented and great hair. I want to say, look at hair the, is amazing. Look at the curls. I, uh, I, just... 
I the Samson like okay. I am embarrassed talking about game shows. By contrast, I am vain and aware of it about my hair. So <laughs> Great hair. Occasionally, I'll have people come up to me and like strangers and say, "Can I rub my hand through your hair?" And like, I'm so not going to lie. Hate I love that, it. but you like it. You like it. Yeah, I think like if I you do not feel microaggressed that your Jufro is an object of Orientalism for them. No, I love it, and it's complete like complete gaiva, complete arrogance, and yeah. I love it. Uh, okay, so this song is gonna need a little audience participation. We're gonna get to it, but you're gonna have to sing the chorus with me. The okay. chorus is perfectly adenine. Um, so this is a song about racism. Uh, so <laughs> we live in a crazy time. Aren't they right? all? There, we live in a, in a world where there's like a major party candidate in the U.S. who has said horrible things about Muslims and about Mexicans. And I think um, putting on my anthropology cap, part of the reason why these things don't strike us as so obviously insane as they are is because we're sort of inured to the fact that people talk about these groups. And we sort of categorize these as groups that it's okay to say – not that it's okay to say crazy things about. But they're but the we, other. We, we, we categorize these as groups that one does say crazy things about. So I have thought perhaps if we thought about these horrible ideas with a perfectly innocent group, we would realize how crazy racism is. And to that effect, I have written a song. And I'm going to sing the chorus. You're going to sing along. And then we're going to sing it. Poppies, 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 they ain't cuddly. Poppies, poppies, poppies taking over the world. Poppies, 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 they ain't cuddly. Poppies, poppies, poppies taking over the world. Poppies, they run Hollywood, they run Wall Street too. Who finances all the world's wars? We all know it's the poppies, 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 they ain't cuddly. Poppies, poppies, poppies taking over the world. On some holy holidays, you know what some people do? Who makes a cracker out of Christian blood? We all know it's those puppies, 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 they ain't cuddly. Puppies, puppies, puppies taking over the world. If you think Bin Laden was a plotting, I've got news for you. Who wasn't there when the towers fell? We all know it's those puppies, 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 they ain't cuddly. Puppies, puppies, puppies taking over the world. Goldilocks is a fairy tale, Auschwitz is one too. Who profits off the Holocaust? We all know it's those puppies, 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 they ain't cuddly. Puppies, puppies, puppies taking over the world. Yeah! Wow. Puppies. Noam Osband. Thank you so much for being our Jew of the Week. Thank you for having me. More at noamosband.com. Yeah. You got the com. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> You're not I'm a, a nonprofit OV.org, <laughs> but until then. I have decided to set to song Donald Trump from November 12th, 2015, talking about Ben Carson. These are exactly his words, edited for brevity. I have not made anything up. When he says he's pathological And he says that in the book I don't say that And again, I'm not saying anything I'm not saying anything Other than pathological's a very serious disease All right. 
Um, Mazel Tovs of the Week, Stephanie. Oh, I got one. It's for tablets own Yair Rosenberg, who, according to an ADL report released uh, recently, is the Jewish journalist second most harassed by neo-Nazis on Twitter. Mazel Tovs of the Year. Yeah, that's Next good Next year, he'll be number one on that list. Um, my Mazel Tov is to the terrific um, orthopedic ER specialist who um, talked me through. So the question was, are we going to just do that thing where they wrench your finger into alignment before they splint it? Or are they going to give you like some pain meds and then you won't know and whatever? And I said, you know, make it like that scene in Say Anything where Don Cusack's punched in the nose and the trainer comes over and just does that awful crunching sound to put his nose like I'm, I'm going all in and he did and it was gentle and sweet and I'm on the men so to that doctor whose name I forget in the ER in New Haven Mazel Tov you are on your way man Liel top that I will my Mazel Tov is to my my rabbi my mentor um, my my light unto the nations Leonard Cohen uh, at 82 releases a new album this week uh, you know I've written a book about him, I, I, I will review the, the album to the extent that one can next week on tablet. But I got to tell you, this is, this is a masterpiece. It is profound. It is truly a manual for living with defeat. And let's, let's, let's go out with some, some notes. See your way through the ruins of the altar and the mall. See your way. Through the fables of creation and the fall Stay your way past the palaces that rise above the rock Year by year, month by month, day by day Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine. It's edited this week by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkin. Rabbinic supervision is by Fox News anchor and presidential debate host Chris Wallace, who is indeed a Jew, despite being named Chris and Wallace. Kosher slaughtering is by Kellyanne Conway. I think she's gotten it before, but she's got to get it again. Her post-debate spin room meltdown was just a thing of beauty. Follow Tablet on Facebook and on Twitter at Tablet Mag. Our music is by Golem. We record at the penthouse known as Argo Studios in New York City. Shalom, friends. <laughs>